Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. I had a chance to see the film uh, just two days ago. It was a lot of fun to just see it with a full audience and with no expectation except I just wanted to kind of go along that journey. So, I mean, the question for you is, what was your expectation when Zach reconnected with you and said, hey, uh, this is my next project and this is what my expectation is? What was that conversation like for you? Well, you know, Zach obviously set the table. I think there was more of a discussion uh, in more detail before Man of Steel, since that was the beginning of the reboot of the DC world, you know. Um, and and so this was sort of a, a follow-up. And truthfully, you know, this being my sixth film with Zach now, I think, and, and increasingly, as the years have gone by, Zach has got increasingly more involved the production of some of these other uh, characters and the DC world with Justice League. And so conversation sort of um, ends up being minimized, really. And, and I think I think it can be attributed to, you know, through the years, we've really established a very cool workflow and efficient, you know, communication. And, and obviously through the years, um, I feel good about the trust that, that's been developed between us. So there wasn't a huge discussion. He just laughs because every film that he does, I don't know how it's worked out this way, but starting with Dawn of the Dead to 300 to Watchmen to Sucker Punch to Man of Steel and now to this, Batman, Superman, they've all increasingly, like the bar just keeps getting higher. You know? Right. But but it's it's actually pretty fun because it's sort of like each film is sort of like a training ground for, for the next adventure. Um just having having read the script um, months ago for Justice League, um, I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> this is out of control, you know. Yeah. Just when you just when you think you've topped topped it out, you know, there's more to come. So, so really, um, you know, it was really to get back to your initial question, it was really just to maintain consistency from the sounds that we had established in Man of Steel knowing that there's going to be other iterations of this DC world involving some of the same characters, we definitely want to carry the common thread through all of these and, and have the audience be familiar with the sounds and count on them being consistent, um, you know, even if certain other directors sometimes are involved. Yeah, I think that's something that I really enjoyed about this film is like there's sounds which you you forget about that they're from this universe, especially like the sounds of Superman of of when he's flying and he's taking off, and there's like a really unique kind of characteristic to to I guess what you guys have kind of set um, for Man of Steel. What you know, how much of of the Man of Steel world could you guys rely on? How much did you have to go out and record? What what were some obviously you have new characters and some new environments that you're introducing, but you know what was your kind of your initial laundry list of sounds that you knew that you were tackling early on, and maybe even even in pre-production stages. Um, well, first of all, in Man of Steel, uh, because that was a whole new, um, whole new paradigm starting from scratch with the DC, we did, we did a lot of recording on that, like unusually huge amount. Um, there were just so many creative and logistical challenges to, um, that we are up against that we really went hog wild on that. And we didn't, we ended up not recording quite as much on this, um, Obviously, all the sounds we tried to carry through from the Man of Steel, obviously the, the Black Zero, the world engine sound, the Kryptonian ship sounds when you're in the Genesis chamber where Doomsday is birthed, um, the security portal command device that 
you put your hand on that gives you control of the ship. Um, All of Superman's flying sounds, his laser and heat vision, uh, even down to some of the backgrounds we established on Man of Steel, um, from the Daily Planet to um, the Kent Farm out in the country. All those sounds we carried forward. And and as you know, know, because scenes are filmed a little differently, you, you always end up adding a few more elements and spicing it up depending on, you know, what you have to cover uh, pictorially. But on this one, obviously one of the, the new things for us and for myself was the Batmobile. And, um, and at first, you know, typically when you go to record, you know, a production vehicle like that, it can, as you know, it can be pretty hit and miss sometimes because even though it might have its own unique sound, it's not necessarily the sound that you, want to end up with, you know, um, and this production took place in Detroit. And, um, I, I told the, one of the producers, Wes, I, I said, Wes, you know, if, if the Batmobile sounds cool in the production, as you guys are prepping it, they had to build this thing. And I, I know obviously you've seen it. It's, it's, uh, pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, it took a lot of engineering, including reverse engineering, literally in that, one of the ways that they had to um, use the transmission in this vehicle, they had to invert it. Um, And by inverting the transmission, I don't know all the technical details of why they had to, but it was a structural and a locomotive uh, challenge that they had to invert this transmission so that even when it was moving forward, it made this incredulous, like almost like a supercharged reverse line that um, was modulated by the RPMs. And so we had to get that. I just thought, wow, that, that could be like, you know, a really cool sound that no one could have counted on having um, should they have just gone the straightforward route and had a straightforward transmission and whatnot. So uh, we ended up going to town with that. Um, John Fasal um, mic'd up that vehicle and inside now, obviously, engine tailpipe, and and in this case, um, had a, a couple of mics on on the transmission um, specifically to get a really close up sound. Um, so along with that, the engine in the Batmobile and the production Batmobile it was a 350 VA. It sounded pretty powerful, but you know, in thinking about you know what we wanted this vehicle to sound like. Um, we were just thinking about the character, Bruce Wayne's character, and he's a wealthy, uh, wealthy guy, very technically inclined with all the gadgets and gizmos. So we really wanted it to sound as refined as possible. Um, you know, we went through and listened to samples of different muscle cars and dragsters and, um, you know, other, other powerful sounding cars. And, and none of them, they all sounded really ballsy and, and powerful, but, they they didn't sound refined and sleek like like Bruce Wayne and so we ended up um, using the combination of this great uh, interesting production line and a Shelby Series One oh, and nice. uh, the Shelby the Shelby's just got a really super powerful sound but it's it's definitely sleek and the particular one that um, that we recorded was a, um, it was one of the first ones made. So it was like one of the beta versions of the Shelby and it it really sounds really sleek and dynamic. So I think that we arrived at a really good combination. And obviously there's a bit of, um, 
you know, processing involved to, to uh, increase the interest factor and not just make it um, so straightforward. So that was our, our main recording adventure uh, in Detroit. How does that work in terms of with Zach, in terms of his involvement, how much discovery or back or forth was there? Is there something that he was saying he was leading you guys in a general direction or he kind of just let you guys loose and then from there you had a, a, plate, a place to start talking about it? Well, bottom line is after, you know, after all these films working together, this being our sixth one, um, there wasn't as much discussion about this, really. Um, uh, you know, bottom line is he encouraged us to obviously come up with cool, interesting new sounds, but he definitely said, don't feel beholden to the prior iterations of Batman films or Superman films. And I was really, really relieved when he said that um, for obvious reasons. Um, wouldn't have been as fun as cha- and challenging if we had to sort of try to emulate um, other people's work. And so it was pretty liberating to know that, you know, we were sort of freed on a creative level to, um, to come up with new sounds. And it was a reboot of the DC world. And so he, you know, he felt that, um, you know, we should just come up with our own new vocabulary and, and character with all these different characters and vehicles and whatnot. But um, getting back to the Batmobile, he really didn't say you know, what he thought it should sound like. And this applies to almost everything that we do with Zach, is that's one of the best parts of working with Zach, is he doesn't start off by telling you what he thinks things should sound like. He's really cool in the way that he wants to hear what you have in mind. And, you know, if you start the game off with trying to articulate instructions you're being given and trying to understand those instructions and, uh, coming up with your own version, you never really get a chance to do what your gut tells you to do. And, and Zach's really smart about that. He, he really lets you go and lets you fly on your own. And uh, as soon as you have a good framework and something, a good sketch of something, uh, some sounds uh, for a certain item or, or character, um, he'll review it. And uh, most of the time it's with open arms, but he's always got little tweaks and bobbles not in a, a super critical way, but he sort of feeds off of our initial ideas and, and then expounds on them. I think that we sort of, it's sort of like a rejuvenating uh, creative process where, you know, we feed each other with new ideas and just keep bouncing back and forth and until we're all happy. Really curious in terms of when it comes to some of these kind of the, the sounds of the different gadgets and whatnot that Batman leans onto. I think it's a lot of stuff that we're familiar with, where, whether it's like the Batwing or the Batmobile or even, uh, you know, a lot of the different weapons he was using. How do you guys even build your library? Is it is it a mixture of stuff that you've already had and it's a combination of those sounds? Or is it really trying to put your finger on, you know, something unique and different that people maybe are, you know, he- hearing for the first time? Yeah, you know, it's a combination of recording things. Um, we did a lot of recording on, on Man of Steel, um, probably a lot more than, you know, your average film. And so that sort of fed that we already started off then with this film with a huge library um, of things that we recorded for Man of Steel. And the two main things that we uh, went to record, you know, on set uh, in Detroit while they had access to the vehicles was the Batmobile and then the, um, the European 18-wheeler, the Iveco 18-wheeler, which they had only for a very short period of time, uh, just for the shoot, literally the day after that 
they were filming the Batmobile chase with that 18-wheeler, they had to return it to Europe. It was like on loan for just like a few days. Oh, jeez. So, okay. Um, so, um, so it was pretty limited, and but we, we got what we needed. Thank God, as you usually do, you, you do what you got to do to get what you need. Um, and then for a lot of the other things, for the weapons, we just basically layered uh, cool, in- interesting elements, uh, both realistic and then quirky little sweeteners, um, depending on the type of shot. Um, that's typically my style. I, I love to go out and record things that I don't have. And, but I, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of just going out to record just to record sake necessarily. Um, I do a lot of recording, even in the last week and a half that I've been off work, I've been recording stuff, you know, the house is being built next door. And Hmm. so you're always doing that kind of stuff along the way, even when you're not on a film. But, um, I love taking sounds, interesting sounds that you have that you already know and love and make new sounds from combinations of other sounds. And I think that's what makes those sounds sound interesting because nine times out of 10, if you make a list of things you want to go out and record that are literal, um, that you read in the script um, or things that are really literal, nine times out of 10, you come back and you've got great, great quality recordings of these various things. But at the end of the day, they're still lacking uh, dynamics and character and movie fun sounds, you know? So, so I don't, I don't, um, I put a lot of weight on recording elements that I feel like I need, but I think it's even more fun playing in the sonic sandbox of, of all the sounds that you've accumulated through the years and, and come up with uh, new fun things. I mean, it's, to me, it's, it's like sonic alchemy, like a scientist playing with chemicals. And sometimes you don't even really know what you're doing, but all of a sudden you put a couple of, uh, couple of things together and you're just like wow what was that I've and how did I do that <laughs> you know? that's awesome just so um, that's that's my main approach really yeah. uh, and I really admire people that are very religious and literal about going out and recording like every single trying to record as many uh, literal sounds as they can um, and I do that too if I don't have it or I feel like you know what I do have was recorded you know five years ago and it could be better if I got a new recording. I'm all about doing that. So, um, that's sort of my, my approach in general. And, um, yeah, I mean the bat wing itself, you know, I didn't in preparation for this film, one thing I didn't want to do, my instinct was to go and rewatch all of, um, the prior Batmans and the Superman films. And I've seen them all. Um, so I thought, you know what, I don't want to bog myself with, trying to pay too much attention to what was done. I sort of relied on what I remembered from them. And I think it was more impressionistic than anything else. And I, I, I didn't really want to, you know, try to copy these things. And I encouraged my, my fellow sound designers and crew to, you know, think out of the box and maybe use those films as reference, but definitely not to hold on to them too dearly as far as trying to emulate those sounds. Yeah. So, um, like in the Batwing, we, you know, it's it's too obvious to go to jet sounds and, and different aircraft like that. So, I mean, basically the foundation of the Batwing is an electric car. Uh, which which and, one? Uh, which, which one did you end up with? 
You know what? Actually, it's something, um, it's one that Chuck Michael had recorded. Chuck Michael is our lead uh, sound designer. And I had an electric car, and I said, I think that this could be cool playing with an electric car. Um, And his recordings were just better. Yeah. Um, Just fidelity-wise, and he had a, a a better spread of maneuvers and whatnot. But um, he predominantly, um, you know, worked with GRM tools, the resin plug-in, mm-hmm. and and we only occasionally like used any jet stuff just for power, just briefly, like maybe the peak of a buy, mm-hmm. um, things like that. We also incorporated uh, bull roar sounds. Um, to I don't know if you noticed the the unique flavor of of the bat wing as it goes by. You really hear the more interesting sounds. Um, as it's approaching and after it actually goes by as it flies off into the distance. And those are predominantly processed uh, bull roar sounds, Mm. um, which I thought was really cool. It gave it a a very interesting but yet powerful um, sound. It's sort of a high-tech synth sound with a processed bull roar. I mean, besides the fact that you have a handful of, between Superman and Batman, you have enough already. But then on top of that, you're getting the opportunity to introduce new sounds for Aquaman, for The Flash, for Wonder Woman. What, where did your mind go when you were, when you were thinking about how you wanted to represent these folks? Because I imagine, you know, there's a big chance that you're going to be coming back to these, these characters potentially in later films. Uh, and so, you know, what were your thoughts about trying to really capture the sounds of these characters? Well, the, the main character that really has any iconic sounds at this point attached to it it's probably Wonder Woman mm-hmm. um, and, and her, her power blast, her clanking together of her bracelets and the power blast. And um, so that one was the biggest challenge. The other characters, uh, as you saw in the film, were only introduced fairly briefly, you know. Um, uh, but on Wonder Woman, we ended up um, coming up with really cool combination of processed gong and bell sounds that that we uh, modulated and sort of turned those sounds into vibrato, which gives it that powerful undulating um, rippling effect. And um, so that that's the one sound that I'm waiting to get a phone call from uh, as they're shooting Wonder Woman now uh, over in the UK. Mm. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure it won't be long before, you know, we're passing off some of these sounds and some of the uh, processing um, so that they can try to keep that consistent for the film itself since, you know, now she's she's covering a two-hour movie. So yeah, there's going to sure. be a, a lot of that stuff. And then um, with The Flash, The Flash was um, revealed in this, obviously, and through a Bruce Wayne sort of like coming back from the future and it's almost like a dreamlike presence to Bruce Wayne as he's in the Batcave. And um, basically that, I'm not sure if that particular application is going to ever come forward in the Flash film, but there was just a lot of trickery and and processing with the Flash's voice, a lot of uh, reverse and forward reverb and um, modulated um, by different plugins uh, like Psycho Ring Mm. and just modulating from fast to slow with the reverse reverb until it turns into the uh, clean line of dialogue. And then, you know, we put delay on the, on the line, on the outgoing reverb of the line with, um, I think we use uh, Echo Boy, you know, Sound Toys Echo Boy and a couple other things. 
Um, and then for Aquaman, the music cue that's over him is so powerful um, as Wonder Woman, Diane, uh, you know, Diane is going through her computer and that cue is so huge that you barely can hear the cool underwater presence that we designed. And then as um, he flies out of his uh, underwater cave, um, basically it was just, it was more like a, a colorful sonic blast. And uh, that sort of took us out of that scene. And then we did get into Cyborg a little bit more, not so much the sounds of Cyborg, but um, if you noticed uh, with his dad, Silas, uh, the scientist Mm -hmm. trying to save his life and trying to create um, something, I think you noticed the mother box, uh, which is uh, intelligence. Basically there's, uh, like basically three different worlds that will be um, looked into in the Justice League films. And this mother box uh, had a large part of um, saving Cyborg and helping him turn, you know, from dying to turning into a, a, a super powerful uh, superhero. Yeah. So we just sort of dipped our toes into to each of those, um, you know, new superheroes so it'll be pretty exciting i think you know whomever ends up um working on those films uh is gonna have a lot of uh, original creative work to do since we <laughs> just since we just sort of touched the surface really in introducing right. those characters so but, I, I, yeah the main the main thing really was um you know with superman batman wonder woman and obviously uh doomsday at the end of the the movie yeah and, and and you touched upon the music cues and and having someone like Hans Zimmer return and Junkie XL definitely collaborate on this. It's incredible to see when you hear Superman's theme come up and you hinted at you know even Aquaman's theme or the music come in. You know what what is it like to collaborate with some of these folks that you have worked with in the past and uh, even um, with the film editor uh, David Brenner. Have you worked with David in the past? Yeah, actually, Man of Steel was the first time I'd ever worked with David, so it was I was really excited. I had heard a lot about David in the past. Uh, he historically has done a lot of work with Wiley Stateman, and I'm good friends with Wiley. And uh, and so uh, I got an introduction from from Wiley uh, when they were working on a film at Universal, and uh, Wiley said innocuously to him, he said, David. If one day I'm not available to work with you on a film, this is the guy you got to work with. And um, it's funny because about four or five years later, there we were. So yeah. um, it was very cool. And and he's got a very great working style in that uh, he's super, super sound focused. Um, his avid tracks, you know, and I come on the film, I, I joked with him the first time. I go, I don't know what you need us for, man. Your tracks are sounding really good. Yeah. I mean, he does an amazing job, and he's so in tune with not all the, only the music, but the sound effects and how everything's working together, that it was a joy to work with him on that film, and then to continue on this. Um, basically, uh, we started uh, during his editor's cut, as soon as the production wrapped, um, we started, just my sound designer, Chuck Michael, and I started and started feeding him sounds for his editor's cut that he needed to show Zach in a couple weeks. And, you know, your first day on the job, he's asking for the bat wing and what doomsday sounds like. (laughs) It's like, hold on, hold on. This is just the first date. We're not even, we're not even there yet. (laughs) 
<laughs> but but truthfully, he's got such a great library that he's got all the typical sounds that he needed to um, fill out his Avid uh, build, you know, with all the action sounds. He works on a lot of big action films, so he's got all the weapons and crashes and uh, vehicles and, and things like that. So really, when, when I started, when we started, you know, it was it literally was that. So Scott, I need a sound for um, for Doomsday and the Batwing. I think I can sort of fake the Batmobile for a little while with some yeah. car stuff, some jet stuff that I've got. So that's how that started off. And um, and working with Hans, it, it was nice this time because we sort of, from working on Man of Steel, we sort of had a little bit of a head start in that when Melissa Mulek, the music editor, started on the film um, in putting together a temp track, obviously she went to Man of Steel and um, reproduced um, all the variations on theme of Superman's uh, various themes. And so right off the bat, um, in Superman scenes, you know, we had a pretty good idea what to expect. Not that Hans, um, you know, you know, exactly regurgitated every single thing, but it was thematically pretty, very similar. And um, so we had that head start. And uh, Melissa, for our first temp dub, other than the Superman cues, um, Melissa Muick and David Brenner um, just used a lot of different cues from other films and a lot of films that Hans had worked on, obviously, so that the the feel of it was in the ballpark. Um, But, Typically, working with Hans, what I do first off, since we start before they do, um, I give them our temp stems. And, um, you know, the beautiful thing about being a composer is composers have a lot more freedom as far as what their music can do against picture, whereas um, us in the sound design world, um, a lot of times we're married to the the image that we see in front of us. and. Yeah when events start and when events stop and, and where on the screen they happen. So, so I encourage them to, you know, take advantage of all of the work that we did on the temp, knowing that that was about 75% of, you know, what we're going to end up hearing. It's just that we're going to be adding things and refining all those, you know, sounds. So um, with that in mind, he and Junkie had access to those stems and, and, uh, and they proceeded to do what they need to do. And as you know, no matter how much communication you have with a composer, at the end of the day, on both sides of the fence, musically and sound design-wise, you you have to do what you got to do. Um, knowing that, you know, you, you want to be complimentary, and we go out of our way to communicate to try to be complimentary, but sometimes those things just end up, you know, certain details end up getting worked out on the final mix. And so there was a good combination of pre-planning, um, pre-communication, and collaborating with both Junkie and Hans. And then there was a lot of uh, a lot of great work done on the final mix stage. So uh, cumulatively, that's that's how um, the advantage of our prior communications <laughs> and our sort of a shorthand that we had, uh, we took advantage of on this film. What is it about working on a film? I can't I can't even fathom working on a superhero film but then this one is this is two and a half hours of runtime and I, I can't imagine that there's a timeline that you're trying to stick to and everyone always says I never have enough time so what makes it possible besides lots of long hours I mean how do you how do you streamline 
your creative process so that you know you can not only not be under the gun all the time but at least make sure that you're doing the job that you set out to do from you know from day one it is pretty daunting um i gotta be honest with you you know it's it's this is i think year 38 for me in the biz and it's Hmm. all gone by in a flash but um every film you know you would think with every additional year that you have of experience that for each film that you start that you would start with a bit more of a confident feel and while i'm always confident in my sensibilities and and abilities you do you stare at that mountain and you look up at the top and you're like how in the hell are we going to do this it's scary as scary as hell it really is but um it's fun too that's the fun of it knowing that after a certain amount of months you're going to be on top of the mountain and uh staking the flag at the top so um it really was undaunting but but as you know none of this work gets done without a good crew. Um, uh, I'm, I, I will claim that, you know, sound designers really are only as good as their crew. I don't care how smart or brilliant or experienced you are. Um, there's so much work to do, especially in that first period of preparing for the director's cut uh, temp mix, where, like I was saying, at least 75 to 80% of your work pretty much has to be framed in um, before Zach presents the film to the studio. And so uh, I brought on my crew. I had four sound designers, uh, Chuck Michael, Phil Berry, David Wurtz, and UC Tegelman. And I had um, myself and the four of them, and we sort of divided um, the film up. Uh, Chuck was my lead designer, so I wanted to focus on certain iconic things with him. And those were obviously the Batmobile, the Batwing, and Doomsday's vocals. So um, Chuck and I collaborated on those particular sounds. And then I went through and uh, divvied up reels, actually. Mm. Um, We just went reel by reel. And then as we developed sounds for certain things that repeat in other reels, we just went out of our way to do a really good job of communicating and making sure that um, each editor had uh, material that had been established by myself and whoever uh, cut the prior reel, whoever was designing and editing the prior reel. So there was just a lot of good communication, and and I built up a really nice library before anyone started. Um, Having read the script, that's one of the first things I do, is go through the script and uh, not only write down story points so I can always keep those in mind, but obviously any uh, sonic references in the script, any description at all, I sort of try to use as a first impression and a starting point as far as, you know, my creative juices and then see what follows from that. But, um, but bottom line, yeah, we, within six, you know, I would say six and a half weeks after the crew started, um, we were on the stage for a 10 day uh, temp dub, um, with like 75 to 85% of this, this film framed in pretty well, sounded pretty cool. Um, obviously at that point, the VFX aren't, um, completely realized, but, um, our sounds were as mature as the visual effects provided at that point. And, uh, uh, Zach was super blown away and, um, and the studio was just crazy about it as well. They just loved it and got super excited. You know, I think anytime, the studio, you know, finally gets to see, 
you know, the director's cut of a film, especially a film like this, where so much is riding on um, the success of, of this particular film to introduce the Justice League and the various other characters and heroes. Um, I think that it was a huge relief. Everyone um, knew we had something great here, and we continued to, you know, work on the sounds and the visual effects as they developed um, always gave us pointers as to what new sounds we needed to be uh, providing. And that's a blessing of the cur- and the curse of VFX is while visually uh, it becomes more realized and realistic and believable and, and awesome, it's, it's really hard to restrain yourself from adding um, more and more sounds. As you see more visual stimuli, your instinct is to add more sounds. And, and that's at the point of the schedule that I think, particularly myself, I, I really focus on um, utilizing a lot of restraint. Like, okay, so we see a couple of these new features on the, on the bat wing, but do we really need to um, add more sound to it? Is it going to make it sound better, or is it just going to muddy up the very cool sounds that we've arrived at so far? So I think that's just as important in the sound design process is coming up with cool sounds is trying to maintain the original integrity of the choices that you made originally and, and not just keep piling on sound up on top of sound and muddying things up. Yeah. You know, it's something that you brought up, which we totally uh, didn't talk about, but I'd love to just hear a little bit about, which is Doomsday. I mean, he's, I remember when the Superman death comic came out, whatever year it was in the nineties. And it was a big deal of, you know, this monumental figure being the death of, you know, of course, later on he comes back. But what, what was it about Doomsday that really interests you? What, what, what was the challenge? I mean, because you're saying, yes, there is previs that you have to deal with and trying to, I'm sure the effects probably were coming in, you know, right along when you guys were on the, you know, potentially uh, deep in with your, uh, with your work. But, you know, what was it about Doomsday that was intriguing and challenging and, you know, how did you guys kind of arrive at this, the final place? Um, yeah, we, his nickname, you know, everything on this film had a, had a code name, um, because of the, you know, security factor. Um, I always have to think to call him doomsday because we know him as Doug. (laughs) (laughs) Which is there a Doug on the crew or where that come from? I don't know where it came from. That's good. uh, yeah, like the bat wing was called the Sally Jupiter, and that Sally Jupiter was a character in Watchmen. Oh, um, right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and uh, the Batmobile uh, was called Christine, obviously for the car Christine, you know. Um, but but bottom line, Doug was fun just because look, who doesn't like to articulate the sound of a creature? You know, I mean, it's um, no one knows exactly what they sound like, so. You know, anything's possible, and that's what's really fun when there's no parameters or no rules as far as what this guy's got to sound like. And for better or for worse, um, he's not a super intelligent uh, type of guy. I mean, he's just a just a beast, you know. Uh, he doesn't speak any language. Um, and so, really, our main thing was to have him sound as huge, ominous, and threatening and scary as possible yeah i mean I, well i was gonna say i really love the reveal when he's you know inside of the ship and and he's kind of in this this kind of like egg pod or whatnot 
it's, 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 it's like a very kind of confrontational moment. And I, I think what you guys did really, I don't know, I, I felt kind of like, oh, my gosh, what are we what are we dealing with here? Yeah, I think that that was a great introduction to Doomsday, that it wasn't like all of a sudden he's on screen and, and bellowing loud roars. Um, I think it was very cool because basically it's it's him in the womb, you know, he's like yeah. embryo, embryonic fluid, you know. And it was really cool that we got to sort of um, disguise um, the characteristics of his voice by um, putting him off in, into that fluid and, and making his, his vocals sound like it was embedded in the gelatinous um, fluid and whatnot. And then it makes it even more surprising and more of a huge scare when he comes out and just opens his mouth wide and blows Lex's hair back, basically. Yeah. Uh, it was very cool. So not only does he have powerful roar, but it looks like he's got some pretty bad breath, too. <laughs> well, there's just some incredible moments when you're trying to understand the strength of this of this Doomsday character, and I think it's one of the fantastic moments is when Superman takes him out into space, basically, which is such an iconic moment because it's you're expecting that this is the end of him, but yet it's it's literally just like the beginning of this battle. So, you know, I think it was a really job well done. What were some of the elements, some of the kind of the signature sounds that were kind of feeding into his overall character? Initially, what I did is. Uh, I got some great recordings, um, vocal recordings. I just wanted to start off. I knew we had to get much bigger than human vocals, but yeah. I wanted to sort of get some human emotion into some of the more subtle, if, if, if you could call any of Doomsday's vocals subtle, but there are actually in the variety, in the range of, of his vocalizations, there are some, some um, m- more mellow ones. And, so I got those from my brother, Gary Hecker, and I spent a couple of two-hour sessions with him and another um, loop group artist, which I ended up using more of Gary than anything. But we started off with Gary and just um, trying to process and get the personality, um, more of the personality type of uh, grumblings and groans and the birthing sounds more up front. I mean, once we get into the action, it's more just about the roars and whatnot. Right. But coming out of the Genesis Chamber and um, and introducing Doomsday to Lex and Superman sitting there, um, that's where uh, more of Gary's stuff is uh, processed. And and obviously we touched it up and combined stuff. My main my main sensitivity when I go to see films and I hear creatures or beasts, whether they be dinosaurs, monsters, or whatever is I'm always super sensitive to hearing like layers of animals and things. And so, I mean, that's one thing that I always really strive to try to avoid. And it's a lot of work, but I think we achieved it. I, I mean, maybe, maybe if a really scrutinizing ear could maybe hear a couple of, of the different flavors, but they really, I thought jived well together. And, and really a lot of it was um, various things, depending on the type of roar. I mean, um, not to get cliche, but yeah, there were like certain type of elephant sounds. There was maybe a tiger here, um, some uh, boar, some boar sounds. And we actually um, used some metal ronks and huge metal ronks and squeals mm. um, and processed those to accompany some of his really big um, yells and screams and whatnot. So just, you know, processing that 
I think we use a little bit of um, uh, GRM contrast and isotope nectar and um, plug-in mixes Psycho Ring does some really cool stuff to vocals and obviously low ender. But it was a lot of a lot of experimentation. I mean, uh, Chuck Michael and I um, sat for hours and hours during the course of many days um, coming up with different permutations and. You know, a lot of times after you work so hard at something, you think, this is it. This is really right. good. You know? yeah. And and then you sit on it for a couple of days and you go, you know what? We can do better. I think it should have this element. I think that we should experiment more with these types of frequencies, especially knowing that we were going to be up against um, Hans and Junkie's score. Um, we, we definitely introduced um, some different frequencies later in the game to... Um, to make sure that we could, you know, cut through and be heard. Um, it's amazing, no matter how powerful the sound you come up with, what a hundred-piece orchestra can do. <laughs> yeah. Like, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty tough to go up against such dynamic music, and uh, they delivered that in spades, obviously. No, absolutely. Well, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I, I you know, just imagining coming off of Mad Max. <laughs> Your last film, going into Batman vs Superman, must have felt just going from the the desert into uh, Gotham City. Must have been an incredible journey for you, and um, you know I really appreciate you diving into this. You know, for for anyone who hasn't seen the film, I would say you know just knowing what you said now, it feels there's so much more to take away from the work that you guys did, and you know I think it's incredible. At the end of it, people can sit down and, and enjoy a film, but not really understand how much work went into it. So, thank you again. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, and it, it was quite a ride between 2014 through 15, and into the beginning of this year, the 16. Um, being able to work with George Miller and Zack Snyder in yeah. the same in the same year doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> so, I I feel blessed on on both accounts. And um, yeah, I, I certainly don't know what the the critics. Um, you know, had going on this one, but boy, they sure beat it up. But um, I'm they really try. Glad that I, I think everyone tries their, you know, their hand at the bat. But at the end of the day, I think the audience speaks volumes. So, yeah, I, I think the fans have spoke, and uh, I'm really happy for Warner Brothers and Zach and uh, the continuation of this DC world. I think it's really headed in a nice world, in a nice direction, and. Um, it's definitely um, a lot different than the Marvel world, which is, is nice to have a little variety right. in the superhero world. I mean, I love, I love this stuff, but there, there is a line sometimes, you know, it's like when, when is too much and when is too often. So yeah. um, the, only, the only thing that we can do as sound artists, you know, is at least on, you know, cover our end and try to make uh, the sounds as interesting and captivating and, and dramatic as possible and that was our main goal through this whole process so um, thank you for the time taken 